Welcome to the Velo Chumps podcast. We have a great episode for you tonight. It is not a special episode. We're going to kind of get back to the vintage Velo Chumps, making fun of things in the industry and the bike bicycling world in general. So we're going to get right to that after introductions. But first off, we just want to point out that Randy Nicewanger is still MIA. So what we would ask the listeners out there is if any of you notice a glut, something like 17 LA sprints going on sale all at once, please reach out and let the Velo Chumps know. That'll give us some clues as to where Randy might be and what's going on with him. But he's not here. Hopefully, hopefully we'll see him next week. But we got the rest of the crew. Chad Locker, you're in the dark. How's that going working out for you? It's working out okay. I'm in the dark a lot of the time, so why not on the podcast? (laughs) Fantastic. Mike Green? Yeah, what's up? Ryan Brainer? Howdy. All right. So, like I said, we're going to we're going to uh, you know, talk a little smack on various things going on in the bike world and uh, the first thing I just want to quickly get to this won't be very long, but the Vuelta a España started and why I want to get to this from a chump's perspective is because we talked a lot when the tour was going on around how maybe with Unchained, we could grow the audience, we could grow the viewership of the sport, we could get more people into it. We had a fantasy league for both the men's tour and the women's tour. It was a great success. We had a lot of fun. There was a lot of going back and forth. We had a lot of people that never were into racing at all, got into the fantasy league. They were watching the tour, and it was pretty cool. It seemed like there was something to build on there. And now... It's the next Grand Tour after that, and uh, let's just say, seems like the Tour is a little bit more polished than the Vuelta. So, Chad, why don't you tell us? We're in, So, at the time of recording, we're through Stage 3. So, we've had three exciting stages at the Vuelta. We're not going to talk about the racing here, but we're going to talk about the organization. So, Chad, why don't you tell the listeners, if they haven't watched it already, What has been going on in the Vuelta for the past three days? Let's see. So the first day, we had a team time trial. So that's a format where everybody on the team is is going kind of in pace line to set the best time. It's usually set off. I think it's the fifth guy across the line is how that works. And so the ACO, who puts on the Vuelta, had a great idea. They were going to kind of do a late afternoon time trial. If you looked at kind of the the times that all the teams would run, they're within like a minute of each other top. So this is going to be a sunset kind of magical lighting for kind of the winning team the best team from last year i think kind of went last um it's near the near barcelona sagrada familia just epically great cityscape except for the fact that they probably weren't planning on the fact that a thunderstorm was coming in and it was going to look like pitch dark night by the time the last team got across the line so i think the last three teams actually had to race with the headlights of their support vehicles behind them and it was kind of a disaster probably the best way (laughs) to phrase that so that's how the first day ended up then we had, um, let's see here, the second the second day was still more rain. Um, I, I actually can't even quite remember how the second day ended for the Vuelta. But the... Well, I do want to point out, I don't want to miss this, that they, based on the conditions and based on the situation from the previous day, they neutralized the GC race at nine kilometers. Okay, so they took the GC times at approximately nine kilometers to go. And this is important because there was a lot of confusion, even amongst the organizers. And there was video going around that the 
commissaires were actually asking for to review iPhone footage that a spectator on the side of the course took to try to determine the GC placings on the day because they they were unclear about where it was neutralized and who was in the lead at that point. So that was pretty exciting. I've never seen that in a race before. Have you? Have, have any of you seen that in a race? I certainly haven't. It's quality. No. I'm no. saying at least they were leveraging the technology available. Today. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Okay. And then what happened in stage three? Uh, let's see here. I, I think it was rather uneventful stage for the breakaway make, made a break and then basically got caught by the end. And then last year's Vuelta winner, right? Uh, Remco went ahead and won the yep. stage and in glorious fashion, went through the finish line, did his salute and then ran into a group of reporters at the end. So he ended up wrecking and had like a bloody face, which made great PR footage for the, for the Vuelta. So that again, it was kind of like, I guess the polite way to say it, it was a disaster kind of finish every day for the last <laughs> three days. It looks like they were a bit disorganized, um, which I guess kind of is a solution to what we asked them to do, right? Because we've been complaining all season about kind of the disorganization of women's racing. And I think we've been saying that the men's and the women's racing need to be on par. So I think maybe they just decided to take the low road and just decide to make all racing kind of disastrous right yeah. now. Just take the Maybe that's road. what they were trying to achieve and parody of sport, but that's probably not the way they should have went. Yeah, I, the it was unfortunate because if anyone had been, you know, really hooked by the tour and they think, oh, there's going to be another one of these grand tours, let me tune in. I mean, I guess, I guess the point for me is that. I don't think Unfortunately, yeah, probably not. <laughs> but unfortunately, it seems like the tour is, you know, as crazy as this might sound, seems like it's a pretty well-run event, and unfortunately, it is not necessarily representative of cycling at large because the Vuelta a España is one of the three Grand Tours. This is not the little apple gravel race that's put on in Manhattan, Illinois. This is a legitimate road race and it seems pretty comical. Um, the best part of the, of the, of the day, the best thing to come out of this is during Remco's interview today. I mean, this is one of his quotes. I'm just going to read this to you. They were asking him about the organization. He, he said this again, some things of safety. It was only 50 meters after the finish line. And it's the third day in a row. It's a bit breaking my balls now. So that was a pretty good quote from Remco. But yeah, I guess, you know, it's unfortunate. And I guess I just want to point out that we have a, we still have a ways to go here in uh, the cycling world to make our sport actually professional, we'll call it, because this, this does not seem professional. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you, you were making some comments, Ryan, I believe you, uh, the words, I think you said that the Volta has been a shit show so far. Is that what you said in our, in our group well, chat? I, I mean, I don't know enough about it to say that because ASO is the parent organization, right? Do we They know? are. So they, 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 this is getting very esoteric about the Volta, but there was another um, group that was or always organizing the Volta and I believe the ASO bought it. I mean, I'm not an expert on this, so don't don't quote me. But I believe the ASO bought it. But the other organization is still actually organizing the race. It's certainly not Prudhomme. Is not the the director of the um, Vuelta a España. I believe it was a, it's an organization called Unipublic that 
organized and owned the Vuelta before, and I think they're a joint effort now between them and ASO, but I think this Unipublic group still organizes the race. But anyway, the point is, the point is, this is the kind of stuff you would expect to see at like a um, Little office park crit. Yeah, exactly. This is the stuff you would expect to see in Manhattan, Illinois, not in one of the premier grand tours of the cycling season. So just, you know, it's just unfortunate that that's where we stand. We've seen, I forget what race it was at in the women's season this year, but it was um, kind of the same thing day after day of like some pretty significant safety events. It was like where those cars were going Mm -hmm. against, I can't remember what race it was. Yeah, I forget which race it was, but but it was like on an open street basically. Yeah, but whatever they call their like union organization, they kind of same thing. Like they stood up for each other and they made some things happen like mid-race. So I'm a little surprised like that the men are, I don't know, like I kind of feel like the men should use their union organization or whatever it is and like set an example is kind of how I feel about it. Could you have predicted the things that they did this year in the Vuelta? Uh, you know, they might've said, Hey, we don't want to do uh racing at dusk in the rain. And then here you are. It's, it's, I mean, they couldn't have predicted that. And then they're racing in it, they're crashing and that kind of thing. So, or the same thing with Remco crashing into the, uh, the person at the end of the race, they couldn't have predicted that, but well, they, I mean, yeah. ultimately it was not, um, it was not safe. I mean, it was not unsafe during the race, yeah. but they very easily could have told the riders ahead of time, hey, by the way, the finishing shoot is super short today, so when you come across the line, be aware. Seems like he had no idea that was going to happen. Or they could have just kind of set up the finishing shoot in a way like a normal race so it would not catch anyone off guard. Now, granted, he's the only one that crashed, but also he was the only one celebrating with his hands off the bars because he's the only one that won the race. And he's a little bit of a cocky young (laughs) kid, so, you know, that's going to happen. But... I don't want to place the full blame on him for doing that because, you know, you that's a super important win for him. He was basically been re- almost he almost got rode off from the beginning because he was the winner last year in an mm. easy year when it was a course made for him and no none of his competition was there. And now Roglic and um, uh, Vingago is showing up and Guerin Thomas is there. So he's not going to win this year. And then he comes on the first mountain stage and wins. So I expected him to be excited about that and you know and then the finishing shoot is like way shorter and way more crowded than normal that's an organizer problem in my opinion and they could have done that a little bit better yeah ultimately i guess what i was what i was trying to say is ryan's point is good they should do that but it's almost like even if they had the list some of these things this year maybe could not have been prevented that's all yeah Yeah. i mean that's true it seems um, I was just going to say that he just couldn't slow that speed sniffer down, man. Just... <laughs> I don't think that was it. I don't think that was it at all. Anyway, anyway, enough of the Welta. What I really want to talk about is the thing that's been in the news all week. And uh, a lot of people have covered this already and talked about this already. So this isn't going to be new, but. Which one of you wants to tell me about these new wheels that were spotted on a Moots? Was it at Steamboat or was it at, uh, it must have been at Steamboat. Who wants to um, tell me about these wheels? Sounds like a good topic for Chad. 
Chad. Chad, you want to tell Chad, you want to tell us about these wheels that were spotted on a on a Moot's custom frame out there in Steamboat? A- apparently, they are yet another larger set of gravel wheels. So, we've kind of made the jump from mountain bikes going from 26 inch to 29 inch some years ago. Then we had kind of this intermediate size of 27 and a half or 650B. So that was kind of in, in between her between 26 and 29. And now we have gone yet another way and we've gone even bigger than 29 inch, right? Which is a 700 C rim. We now have 750 D because whatever reason we need yet an even bigger wheel size to conquer the gravel. That is, I'm, I'm not quite sure why, but we have them and we've got a prototype set of tires from WTB who I guess Maybe he's a pioneer in the area because they, I believe, made one of the very first 29er tires ever, which was the Nano Raptor, which I think was the exact same tire they've debuted in the 750D gravel wheel set, which apparently will help you roll over gravel even better than before. So good for good for you if apparently you're getting stuck in the gravel with your 45 or 40C, 700C rim option. You have a choice potentially in the future. So if you couldn't stand over your 49c frame now boy look out you're gonna need a step ladder <laughs> chad how many well, how many inches is uh 750d tire i don't know it's less i mean there's a unicycle size room we've had for a while like a 36er yeah. it's like 30 it's under 32 yeah because it's, it's a, but it's obviously above 29. It's an in-betweener, right? It's between the unicycle 36er size and the classic 29er 700C size. So it's just, what, <laughs> green, it's 50 millimeters bigger. There you go. I mean, I don't know. In diameter. There it is. But I don't know who's going to be the proponent of this, who needs this on their gravel bike. But there you go. We're maybe going to have it. Was this truly a custom Moots? Yeah. I mean, the well, tires don't exist. Well, think about it. You you can't put. Uh, think about your bike. You couldn't put a, a bigger wheel into your bike. It wouldn't work. I, well, I just meant like, was it custom geo to fix yes. a lot of the things we've already complained about with this? No, 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 no. It was custom geo to fit a giant wheel in it. Is what it was. <laughs> but it wasn't necessarily like prevent toe overlap and all that stuff. No, no, absolutely not. Absolutely yeah. not. In fact. This thing had, I would even call it like four foot overlap or even heel overlap. I mean, it was ridiculous what was going on with this bike. But, um, you know, normally with something new like this, I would say, hey, is any of you want to try this? But you can't because no one has a bike that this will fit in there. No one has a frame that could fit these wheels. And, you know, from a chump's point of view, I just wanted to talk about this a little bit because what I, I don't like it. And maybe it's not the wheel itself I don't like, but I don't like the way that this was rolled out because this was rolled out. So think about it. No pun intended. We've talked about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) We've talked about this before. If you're a really, really um, short person. You have to make compromises to ride on a 700 C wheel set. So we've, we've talked about this before and. For someone who is, you know, four foot eleven or something, they just don't look right on a seven. Their bike doesn't look right on a seven hundred C wheel set. They would be better served on a six fifty, right? We've had this conversation, right? And so, what would make the most sense would be the application for a seven fifty D wheel slash tire combo. What what would what do you think 
would make the most sense based on what you know the 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 normal what we think about when it comes to wheels and tires i mean you have you have two design criteria right when it comes to wheels and tires one is kind of the frame geometry the inseam and the height of the rider who's riding the bike right yep so mm -hmm. I would I would argue if you're the average height male or a, or a slightly taller male, 700 C is probably ideal. And if and if you're rather short in stature, I mean, standover is clearly an issue. So, you know, mm -hmm. that's where the 650 view, maybe even the 26 inch rim, comes into play. Yep. And we can get over the gear inches, which is you know kind of the mechanical advantage mm -hmm. with chainring size. So we we have all these we can design. I think the argument here is not we need 750D to fit even taller riders, like six foot five and big. Correct. That. It's that the terrain dictates for rolling resistance, et cetera. We need a, a contact patch, if you will. We need to narrow up the tire. And if you can imagine the tire kind of squishing on the ground as it rolls over, it's we need to lengthen the contact patch from front to back and narrow it from left to right, which kind of is counterintuitive to what I know for rolling resistance. This is why we Mm -hmm. went the other way went with a wider tire so we could narrow up anyway who cares we're getting really esoteric here in the technical nature of it but they're claiming we need 750d so we can have a tire with a big enough you know contact patch whatever it is that it rolls over and supports chunky gravel and gives us a fast racer advantage and i'm sort of figuring if you need a 40 millimeter tire with a 750d you know giant wheel on it aren't you better off just having like a 2.6 inch 29er tire and your big old mountain bike because you must be hitting some boulders all day long basically right, yes. it's sort of where i'm thinking we need to go with this so i i don't think the tire has an advantage for you know riders with that are challenged to fit a bike per se because it's probably a a tail of the curve here where there's not that many people that are going to need this for fit but i'm, I'm also struggling to see where right. it is for gravel it, that is the part that i don't like because this would make sense if you were tall so very tall riders, if you've ever seen someone, even on a 61 size bike, when you, that's, you know, that's a production model. You can get 61s from Trek or Cannondale or whatever. Even if you see a 61, they start to look a little bit like, eh, the, the angles are a little bit abnormal. It doesn't maybe look like it fits right. You know, it's very similar to when you're having a 49 or even smaller bike on a 700C. It, it looks out of whack. But this is not what they're saying. This moots that they produced to ride at Steamboat with these 750D wheels is a size 54. Now, granted, it doesn't look ridiculous, but here's the thing. To your point, Chad, what they have said is that the 750D has a bead seat diameter of 660 versus the 622, Okay. So what they're saying is if you run a 40 mil, you're basically getting the exact same total diameter as if you run a 2.6 tire on a 29er wheel. So you're getting a narrower tire, but you're still getting the same contact patch diameter, oh. which, well, whatever. Yeah. I mean, you're not getting the same contact patch because it's narrower, like Chad well, said, but you're getting the same lengthwise contact patch. I just wanted to throw this in there, which I could care less about these wheels and tires, but... From the drag racing world, it's funny. You can go to a, a taller tire, but a narrower contact patch. And when you look at the total patch touching the ground, the square inches is bigger on a taller tire. So mm -hmm. the argument can be made that you can get away with a faster wheel or tire with the 750D by going with a, a 40C tire. 
but still have an effective contact patch when it gets rough, rough of maybe a 50 or something. But I don't know if they were going for that. Right. So so basically what they're doing is it's more it's more or less that it's more or less okay. that. Now, what I would suggest I would propose myself is that this is a little bit dubious that you're going to get an extreme speed benefit because remember this is a taller wheel so now you're giving up some arrow I'm, I'm not a mathematician or an aerodynamicist i'm not going to add this all up the the wheel is bigger so it is definitely heavier the spokes I mean, you're making, you know, you might need more spokes because you're, you know, you're covering, you know, the spokes need to have more strength in them because it's a bigger diameter you have to cover with that. I've heard some people suggest it might require boost or some other type of spacing because now you're getting, you know, longer spokes and bigger, bigger wheels. So my point is we're creating all this complication for a dubious benefit and we're not specifying it's for tall people. We're saying, oh, yeah, this is going to give X, Y, and Z person a benefit. Now, my my argument here is the same issue that short people have with six, I mean, 700C frames, aren't average size people going to have the same issues with 750D frames? So, you know, Ryan, if you're riding a 56 frame, which is smack in the middle of quote-unquote normal production frames you're on this bike you're going to have significant toe overlap okay and i like my cleats as far back as i can get them so i already have toe overlap yeah so i mean you're going to have extreme like foot overlap it's not even i wouldn't even call it toe overlap at this point you're going to have extreme foot overlap and at some point to get these types of wheels into a standard size frame, not a 61, not a custom 63, into a 54, you're going to make compromises. So if you remember back when Chad was mentioning, we went from 26-inch mountain bike wheels to this 27.5 and then to 29. So, Mike, do you remember that transition? Do you remember the arguments around that, what was going on at the time and why did we end up with the 29er as sort of the de facto standard on mountain bikes these days? Uh, unfortunately, I do not. Um, because, <laughs> because I think when I, I got into mountain biking back in 2010, um, 29ers was well established as the faster standard of the day. So the, the 29er just used the 700C road bike rim diameter. So I think Bruce Gordon... Um, he's no longer with us anymore. Mm -hmm. He designed kind of the rock and roll tire. I think it was, he had, he had a, he had a frame building business. And so he could afford to kind of build custom frames to meet his own rims. He had Panaracer make him this first set of, they might be the official first monster cross tire, the 29er tire. I think they were like around a 40 C or 42 C the ro original rock and road. So it, again, it, it used the parts we already had to sort of say, mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to solve this solution. This tends to go another way, right? We're saying, okay, now we're going to make yet a new part to have a new solution. And I guess I'm struggling to understand why 700C wasn't working for the vast majority of the gravel market. And then, you know, the conspiracy theorist in me, if you want to go down that path, yeah, say yeah. this, like, look, we, we figured out how to make cross bikes fit a 40C or a 45C tire in some cases. And so you now had one bike that could do both cross and gravel, 
and it seems like with this solution, we've now finally found a way to make a dedicated gravel bike tire, which now means you need to have both a cross bike and a gravel bike if this were to become <laughs> the thing and sell you yet another bike and mean you can't reuse your rims and tires on your gravel bike and your cross bike and your road bike all at one. Nobody's well, going to run 750D with 23 slicks or 28 slicks no. or whatever on their road bike. And then you have to go to boost hubs. So now road boost can becomes a thing. Mm -hmm. I, you guys all know when our little side chats, I absolutely hate the idea of road boost. It just seems absurd to me. But anyway, that that's me on this one. Chad, Chad, your comment about not running slicks on a 750D wheel is, I feel like that's uh, wrong. I mean, within a month, if, if this took off as a gravel tire, I think we would see road wheels and, and bikes with 750Ds real fast. Yeah, but again, you can't put these on your right. existing road bike. That's right. You would need yeah. dedicated frames for this. It's not like you yeah. can put a flip chip into an existing frame to get 750 oh. and 700. That's not how it works. Specialized would definitely have an SL9 750. But I, I don't think so because because no. it doesn't make sense because here's why. What else happened to mountain bikes over the past 20 years or, or whatever time frame we're talking about here? They got slacker. Oh yeah. No. They got they got <laughs> disc brakes, right? We overcame the the fact that we could put a monster tire on the 700C rim and stop it, right? Disc brakes. But they also got they, they did get slacker, and that's an important point because you know what's what's the head tube angle on your mountain bike, Ryan? Do you know? Sixty four. Sixty four. I mean, what's the head tube angle on a on your road bike, Chad? On my road bike? Oh, what is it? On your Amonda, on my Amonda 73, 73, 73 and a half. But I think this custom yeah. had slacker head angle to avoid the toe overlap, by the way. Did it not? I think it's 67 degrees or something for a gravel bike. With the, the Moots yeah. one? No, it wasn't. That's the. It had massive toe overlap. That was what they ended up with. It was not nearly as oh, slacked out as a current, as a modern mountain bike. So, you know, mountain bikes have wheelbases of like 1,100 these days and you know or a plus you know 11 10 11 15 depending on the size and road bikes are like a thousand is getting big for a road bike right so you know you don't have the room to put these wheels unless you're going to make geometry compromises and that leads me to my point what i don't like about this is you're basically creating some sort of hype around this new cool thing that we're going to release all oh, these wheels they're going to turn over faster which is dubious at best i mean yes in theory they're going to turn over faster because they have a little bit more rotating weight but they're also going to accelerate slower because they have more rotating weight so you have all of this it to me it's very dubious anyway this whole contact patch thing dubious i mean if you look there's a lot of people that have a lot of now research saying that 700s aren't really faster than 650s so you know we're talking about now we're going to 750s because it's going to be faster dubious but the problem i'm having with that is you're going to introduce this thing that's going to require other compromises whether it be geometry compromises you're going to have like a super steep seat tube and a super slack head tube to fit this stupid wheels in there on some sort of frame or you're going to have massive toe overlap or you're going to have some other compromises where this isn't going to handle well i mean the handling is going to be wacky one way or the other and 
allegedly, if you're going in a straight line, you're allegedly going to be a little bit faster. But nobody talks about that stuff. They talk about, oh, we got this new thing. We're going to have this cool big wheel that's going to roll faster and it's going to make you faster. And, you know, us three, I mean, us four here, we talk about these kind of angles, you know, tube angles and wheelbase and geometry. But now if we're talking about it from a chump's perspective, most of the people we ride with don't understand this stuff. They don't understand how the bike geometry changes are going to change the handling and change the ride characteristics and create potential compromises when it comes to toe overlap and things like that. So you have the, mar the, the industry potentially saying, oh, we're going to roll out this cool new thing that we want people to buy. And they don't even realize, we don't educate them. The industry, the, the cycling, whatever you want to call it, does not educate people around the other implications of that. It's like, oh, here's just a fast thing we'll sell you. And I could see someone buying one of these things and they're like, man, this thing rides funny. Right. Must be the wheels. And it's, you know, and it's Laura W who's riding with us and she's five foot six and she says, you know, yeah. why am I having trouble with this? Every time I turn, I'm hitting my toes or, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's difficult to go up hills compared to my 23 pound triathlon bike, you know? Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, and we don't talk about all of these things and we don't, um, it's just like they, people assume the chumps out there are assuming, well, if the industry's selling me this bike, it must be good. It must work. So, and I'm, I mean, unfortunately it's not the case. So here's my counter argument. And I'm mostly playing the devil's advocate here is 700 C is fantastic because it's refined over the years, what 40 or more years. So the fork rake, the chain stays, everything is fantastic. They've just kept making the handling better and better and better. They got good handling for gravel bikes. They have good handling for road bikes, crit bikes, um, climbing bikes, etc. But who's to say that, is the perfect size for a tire. Um, and in the same respect, can there, are there gains to be made elsewhere? And, you know, without trying something to seeing what sticks and what works better. So like 29ers, you know, I, I know there's guys just seeing the forums and that kind of stuff posting online is this kind of stuff is, or the 29ers, guys who love 26ers will still say, ah, those things suck. I'm going to stick with my 26er. But it is accepted that 29ers are faster if you're doing anything less than absolute fast downhill stuff. So, you know, without without trying stuff, there will be no innovation. So I can't I can't shame them for trying this because, you know, ultimately maybe it is faster in some scenarios, but it would be great to see some kind of comparisons and maybe see other companies or something come on board and, and try to put some of this stuff out in the market and see what, see if it sticks, see if it is faster, see if people are trying it that are amateurs, pros and, or novices. And, you know, is it faster on the rides to the tap? Do they feel like it's, maybe it's super fast when they're not going over Hills, you know, just some, I mean, that's fair. That's fair, but the counter-counter argument then is, why don't we use 32-inch tires on mountain bikes then? Yeah, 100% agree. And, and I don't know well, where the, you know, where does innovation and craziness stop or, or where is the gray area there? While you were talking before Mike gave his spiel, I was kind of thinking along the same lines. Like, 
on the mountain bike, for example, throughout the years, there's been a couple different companies that have introduced different styles of forks. So like there's this, I don't even know if they're still around, but trust forks. Um, and of course everyone like hates it and thinks it's hideous and whatever, but like you're anytime a radical change is introduced, we're going to, I mean, there'll be some early adopters, but there's also going to be people like Mike said, that still love their 26s and, um, still love their single speeds and you know, whatever. So I admittedly am not a fan of this, but I also accept it for, you know, somebody has got to push the envelope and like, maybe that's why the SL8 is so much like as they make frames lighter, they, you can offset some of that weight somewhere else. And so like, we just haven't seen the final version yet. Maybe it's not as bad as a 750 wheel stuck on a moots that's not geometry corrected. I mean, it, okay. I will definitely give them credit for when people have been talking about that. They're like, we're not trying to roll this out, but we do see this at the advantage of it. I guess the bigger issue for me is not even so much moots themselves. It's that when they release this, they just did what they said they're going to do. Hey, we're just trying this out. To your point, we're going to try something, see how it works. They've been very clear about we're going to have people ride this and find the pros and cons and develop it and innovate, like you said. But what I don't like is that, I mean, I almost feel like that they, I I would have rather heard them say something to the effect of, because they were, let me put it this way, they were defending some of the choices. They basically said, yeah, it has a lot of toe overlap. And but we like to put toe overlap on our race bikes because we don't think it's a big deal for, you know, when you're trying to gain that edge on racing, you want to have a little bit, uh, you know, tighter wheelbase or whatever. But in, in in on the other hand, what I wish they would have said is, hey, in order uh, wheel size goes with the system. It's just like Mike said for 700 C, they've refined the geometry to understand what how to make it handle right, how to make it comfortable all of these things you need to do with a bike, right? And it would have been better if they would have come out and said, hey, look, we're so far away from this because we think that there's value here in this area, what they said. But we recognize that there's going to be all these compromises in geometry. There's going to be compromises in toe overlap. There's going to be compromises across the board. So we're not ready to roll this out because we need to work farther down the road with the full bike system, including the frame, including the tires, all of these things to say, how do we make this work in the best way? And instead of getting people thinking, because you know there's people out there like, oh, these wheels, they're bigger. They're going to be faster. I want to get some. Let's roll. Let's go. Instead of talking to the consumers about, listen, when we make bikes, bikes are a system. Bikes have lots of components that have to work together and the total sum of all those components working together is what creates the ride feel and the ride experience that you have. And we want it to be a good experience, not just, Oh, let's just throw some big bikes, some big wheels on our bike. And yeah, you're going to have toe overlap. Oh, well, we do that all the time anyway. I don't know. I just feel like it rubbed me the wrong way, the whole way that this whole thing came about. And I would just like to see more care taken to ensure that people understand what we're trying to do to create a good bike experience for them. Yeah. You know, I think this is what happens when two companies are both trying to, or especially WTB was trying to rush this whole thing is they could care less what frame it's going on. 
they're they're probably excited that they get to produce something that could sell quite a bit and there's new marketing and it's a brand new size um and moots they're like yeah we can build it because they're a custom frame builder but they didn't necessarily optimize it the first time around so it's it's really at the early stages before they can really make that that top tube longer maybe the chain stay longer and start to to build on that good feeling geometry do you think maybe that they threw it out there to let other companies like if they truly believe that this is where the future of racing is going they threw it out there to let other companies also start to do like r&d and push that envelope a little bit or no? I mean, maybe, but it's unfortunate that the way the bike industry is, is that you have all of these different component makers so disjointed and, you know, like I said, the entire bike together is a system. It doesn't work well when one part of it's out of whack with the other part. And if we are doing this piecemeal innovation, it can lead to you know, it can lead to bad experiences. What we've been talking about a lot on the show, we don't want people to have bad experiences on the bike. You know, it can lead to bad experiences if you don't have, if we don't do it right. But unfortunately, we're not in a position to do that. And like, you know, when it comes to this fit stuff, I'll give you another example that we've we've all kind of talked about. And and it's not even about internal cable routing. Don't get me wrong what I'm about to say here, because that's a, that's a mechanic problem. And as someone who works on bikes, I, I don't want to work on it. But, but that aside... I can tell you, me personally, we were just talking about how, you know, Moots can make this because they're a custom builder. I have looked across the board and now, you know, the when Specialized released their SL8, it, it got me thinking. Every mainstream major bike brand on the high end, we're talking about a high end performance race bike. That's the lightest one, the lightest version has all of the aerodynamic tricks up its sleeve. Every major bike brand now, today, if you buy the top, top end race bike, which has the most performance features, you have to buy a single piece bar stem that probably doesn't fit you. It's unbelievable. I cannot, I could never buy ever a top end production bike because it will not, that stem, bar stem combo will not be the size for me, period. What about... Even even if you don't look at the, or I should say, let's say let's say you do look you do look at the the reach for those bars, would you still consider it? Well, what I'm saying is, I already know that the stem bar bar stem combo that they pick for the size of frame that would fit me, gotcha, is not the size I would use if I was building the. You know, if I had a normal stem slash bars and I was building it to my fit, I couldn't make it work on any of the stock models of any of the top end bikes. We're talking about $14,000 bikes and I can't get one that fits me. That's totally insane. I don't. Well, but I, I want to argue with you because you bought a bike and it didn't fit you. So you spent a couple hundred dollars to put a stem on it that did. OK, so let's call it $200. Well, OK. Yeah, but now I you're gonna buy a fourteen thousand dollar bike and you're gonna complain to me that you're gonna have to spend four hundred dollars to make the cockpit. No, no, no. I didn't spend anything like that. I got a new stem and I sold my old one, the one that was brand new off the bike. It cost me like forty, maybe not even forty dollars for that stem. And I could change it out on my current bike. I could change it out with no special labor, no special nothing. It was just changing out a stem on like any bike. 
took me like five minutes. Okay. So it's totally different because on these things, not only are you buying a $400 bar stem that you have to change out, you have to take everything apart. It's a massive ordeal. You're cutting your hoses. You're rebleeding your brakes. It's it's massive. Yeah, but you also bought the F1 so bike, so it's going to... It's going to have a little bit more labor in order to get it to fit you. You didn't buy the F1 a bike. So, I mean, that's the argument I'm going to make. If someone buying a twelve dollars to $14,000 bike, I'm not going to have any sympathy if you are outside of the bell curve, right? Because I'm going to say they didn't they didn't intentionally put handlebars on this bike to say, well, we're going to, we're going to screw everyone over to go buy new handlebars. They probably said this is the handlebar that's going to fit more than half of the people buying this bike. And I'm sorry that you got really long arms, Eric, but you're gonna have to buy. <laughs> no. You're gonna have to buy a new cockpit. That, I mean, that's that's hey, probably kind of where you are, right? I'm a hundred percent in agreement with Chad. Is um, somebody spending over eight thousand dollars is gonna say they're they're gonna go in and say, yeah, I think I need the shorter stem. Well, that'll be six hundred dollars, sir. He's like, dude, I just spent eight thousand dollars. Who cares about six hundred dollars? You know, it's like <laughs> sure, but. The principle of it is that most people are going to buy that bike, not even know they need a different stem, and they're going to ride it and not have a great experience because, oh, this must be perfect because it I spent $14,000 on this bike. It must be what I want. And the other thing is I'm not outside the bell curve. I actually get myself into an aero position because what they do, Chad, is they get the people that are if, – if I get a 58 – the 58 is going to come with like a hundred millimeter stem because people that are, they're assuming the people that are going to buy these bikes are not going to, not going to be, you know, long and low that they're going to be like, quote unquote, upright or whatever you want to call it, which why are you buying a race performance, crazy high performance bike? If you're going to be sitting up in the, in the saddle all day. They, they can't predict when they're going to have a a novice-level person with pro-level power coming in, Eric. It's like, But novice-level people shouldn't be buying an S-Works is what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. That's insane. That's, so. that's you. That's you. That's You got the, the, the pro-power and, and athleticism. I did not buy an S-Works, though, is what I'm saying, and I won't. Right, I have ahead. three <laughs> things that I've been wanting to say. So... Number one is, and I don't, I'm sure this isn't true for every shop, but when I almost pulled the trigger on the Amonda or Amanda, um, the, I needed the shorter seat mast and I wanted a different, it came with the RSL bars Mm -hmm. and I wanted different ones and they offered, you know, it was last year's model, I guess. So maybe they were trying to make a deal, but they were like, We'll switch the bars out for you for free. We'll put the shorter seat mast on there to make sure this bike fits you. It's an expensive bike. It should fit you when you walk out of here. So like, I'm sure not every shop does that, but that was reassuring to know because that bike's still on my short list for the day that I decide to pull the trigger on a road bike. Mm-hmm. Secondarily, um, <laughs> for, your, for, the, for spending, the big five Oh birthday. <laughs> exactly. Um, Additionally, I mean, we're, I know we are all pretty much on the same page here, except for maybe Randy and Mike. But um, if I'm spending twelve dollars to $14,000 on a bike, I'm getting a custom geo built for me bike, not an off the shelf specialized. Yeah, but we're, we're different. I know. And that's, I said that. And the third thing, the real thing that 
like you were talking about what bothers you about the story with these 750D wheels, the we've talked about this before, but this is why chumps in general shouldn't be buying race bikes, but they're selling them, you know, obviously they use the tour and all that stuff to sell us stuff. Like they're selling the 750D thing as a faster thing. And it's like, really, if you're a chump, you really shouldn't be so focused on speed to begin with. If you focus on ride quality and ride comfort, you're going to be faster than if you're on one of these off the shelf race bikes anyway. So that's the frustrating thing for me is if they just tailored to the average bike consumer from a not race perspective, I feel like they, it would go further than trying to shove racing geometry down somebody's throat. Yeah, but except for that, they the race they're not nobody's in selling you a racing geometry bike. That's my point. They're taking a race bike and making it quote unquote non race geometry, i.e., having a, a shorter stem with a higher angle. That is not what I'm going to use, and I'm not a I'm not a racer. That's not what we're talking about here. But I, I I guess the point is, road bikes are fun, so race bikes can be fun. But you're right. You need to be comfortable. You need to be able to hold the position on the bike for a long time. You need to be able to be in a place where you can put power on the bike. Otherwise, it's not fun. So just giving you the technology to make you faster, but not telling you how to optimize and how to utilize that technology is a problem we have. And it's the same. What it frustrates me with this 6750 thing, it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to give you these new wheels. They're going to make you faster. But if it introduces other compromises to the geometry and handling of the bike, whatever little bit of speed you might have possibly gained by having a little bit bigger wheel, you could it could be out the window by far just because you don't understand the rest of how the bike works and how to utilize that tool to get you from A to B as fast as possible. And this is the part that we don't. It's like we look at the new shiny thing like, oh, we have these one-piece bar stems. They look cool, and they're more arrow than a stem with bolts on the front. Or we have these new wheels that are, I guess, roll a little bit faster, have a little bit bigger contact patch. But we don't talk about all the other pieces of the puzzle that potentially are going to slow you down a lot more. And why aren't we talking about that? And why aren't we talking about the whole bike as a system that you as a rider need to interact with? It's not just ever one component. You have to interact with the entire bike. Yeah, I don't think that this is too much to consider as far as being serious at this point. From a an enthusiast perspective, it's let's see what else come out, comes out next. See if uh, GCN or MTBN or whoever does some kind of a test where they do a gravel racer sector and see which which one is faster with similar watts. Um, so, you know, I, I see this as mostly, um, kind of a little bit of a, like when, uh, artificial intelligence kind of peaked or, you know, popped out earlier this year, like, like, look at this cool stuff we're doing. So I, I don't get offended by it that they're not working on other stuff or that it's, I don't feel like this is, um, pandering to the masses. I think the masses who have uh, bikes that are costing $4,000 or less probably don't even give a crap about this kind of stuff. They're probably not looking at the new, the bike news every day. Like we are, 
Um, <laughs> and, and, and some of that might be a little bit insulting, but it's not, not intending it to be. Um, but, you know, Ryan, I guess I, you said something in there about, you know, like, why aren't they working on other stuff for us? But it doesn't matter. It, the, the people who um, are not spending massive amounts of money on this don't give a crap about a 750D well, wheel. I also was just thought about you kind of asked Josh Portner the same question about, you know, when you're designing these things, do you have like the, you know, general consumer in mind? And his answer was not at all. <laughs> it's race driven, <laughs> race focused. That's the only thing is to make things go fast and win races. And so maybe that's just it. I mean, you're right. The racing element will drive innovation because you have people looking for that advantage. But again, the other thing that Josh said was that it seemed counterintuitive that wider tires were going to be faster. And what he found out was when people were riding in a more com- when they were more comfortable across the cobbles and they weren't getting bounced around so much, they were able to go faster, not necessarily because of aerodynamics, not necessarily because of physical properties of the bike, but because the person was more comfortable and the, therefore the total system was more efficient, they could go faster. And that was what, that's what I'm trying to say is when you're, if you're on a bike all day, it's like you said, Ryan, if you're not ready to be in a race position, if you don't have that flexibility and you're stretched out and you're leaned over and, and you can't do that with your body, it doesn't matter how aero you are. If you're just, you know, in pain, you're just not going to be fast, period. It's a total system thing that needs to be optimized. You know, I'll, I'll tell you another story quickly that relates to that is, you know, this guy, Chad, that's been riding with us. Yep. Not Chad, uh, Chad Locker. Re- replacement Chad, Chad. So Chad, this guy is trying to show up. I'll tell you this story, Chad. So the other Chad, he's showing up trying to show up to our fast rides. And the guy is legitimately, he's a strong rider. He's a good athlete. He has good raw potential, right? And, you know, he's talking to me. He's like, hey, man, I want to he, he falls off the back a little bit. So he's working his way up. He's new to cycling. OK, he's new to riding bikes. So no problem. I mean, he's going to be a super strong rider once he you know, it takes a little while to understand how to ride in a group and, you know, to really like build yourself up as a cyclist. Right. It's not going to happen in the first week. But, you know, he's asking me, he's like, well, what can I bake? What, what kind of wheels or what kind of bike can I buy to make me faster? And I'm like, look, dude. The first thing you can do is be more aerodynamic in your position because you're sitting straight up in the air. And he's like, yeah, well, I'm on the I don't think my bike fits me exactly. And I was talking to him. He went into a local shop and I'm not going to mention the shop, but he went into a local shop and he bought this bike. And I said, well, were you looking at that particular model when you went in there or did the guy just sell that one to you because that's what he had on the floor? He's like, oh, yeah, he just sold it because that's the bike he had. That It was the only one that even came close to fitting me. So that's what he sold me. And, you know, if someone's going to sell that Trek that doesn't fit Randy to him because he likes purple and they see they can make a sale, you're going to end up with a bad experience. You're going to end up with this guy that doesn't has a bike that maybe doesn't fit him great. And I guess my point is, whether it's your $14,000 S-Works or whether it's your $2,000 entry level bike or whatever, you should be on a bike that fits you. It's not like a car. It's not like, you know, that it has a certain amount of horsepower and a certain handling a bike has to fit you and work for you because you're the motor, not you're just pushing the gas pedal. And if you're the engine and your output depends on how that how you interact with that bike, 
then it doesn't it it needs to be clear to the buyer that yeah that's a cool purple color but this bike isn't going to fit you and not everyone's going to do that and certainly it's hard to do that when online sales which we're trying to go to more online sales and i guess that's my underlying point here is that whether it's bigger wheels or aero cockpits or whatever else we're doing the bike still has to work for the individual it's completely different than motorcycles, cars, or any other. Even e-bikes is not as big a deal, right? But when you're talking about a bike that you're the engine, the bike seller, whether that's the brand or whether that's the shop or whoever is selling that bike, needs to help you understand that this bike has, you have to interact with this bike in a certain way for it to work for you. How many times did he get charged to have his seat post cut? Oh my God. How did you know that was the shop? We're not gonna, <laughs> we're not going to go down that road. <laughs> but you, I mean, we. I feel like we talk about this not infrequently on our podcast. But I, I mean, I don't want to offer this up to our entire seventeen listeners. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, Chad. I think Chad reached out to me and talked to me. I know he talked to you, like for anyone that we can help, I would much rather have help you make an informed bike decision than to you end up with something that doesn't fit or isn't the style or geometry or whatever, and end up unhappy with a bad experience right, and exactly. you never get back on a bike. So like, you know, I don't know all the things, but I am more than willing to have the conversation with somebody to help them make an informed decision. Just ask. Absolutely. We all want people to have good bike experiences. So reach out. Chad, you wanted to talk about made. I did. It's a, it's a really cool thing, right? At least if you like custom bikes, which I like them, I, I no, no, no bones about it, but that was the, um, I think it's the replacement for the North American handmade bicycle show, which I think is kind of falling mm-hmm. out of favor. So it, it's in the, it's in the Portland area for whatever reason, the Pacific Northwest seems to have a lot of the custom cycling industry. I'm not sure if it's the culture. I'm not sure if it's because cross is big in that area, but what have you, you've got some of the big names, uh, featured in that area. I think even some of the East coast builders traveled over there to come to the show. Um, you know, we didn't, none of us visited personally, but I think if you just Google it on the internet, you can find each one of the forums was kind of catering to a different tier for the bike. I think if you went to, you know, escape collective or whatnot, they, they're predominantly looking at kind of the race bikes. But I think if you go to some of the other forums, you can find, there were all kinds of bikes there, right? There were travel bikes, Mm -hmm. there were mountain bikes, cargo bikes. Um, you know, it probably depended on what, what piqued your interest was probably the kind of bikes that you were going to feature on your website or your blog that you were going to highlight from the show. But I'd, I'd kind of encourage everyone to go out there and look some of these things. I mean, there were some bikes that are just artistically beautiful and gorgeous. They maybe don't have as much practicality <laughs> from a bike standpoint, but I'm glad there's somebody out there building these kind of things. So, but if you're Did into you the boat deep parts, yeah, it's a cool show. The, mm-hmm. va- the vanilla tricycle. I mean, yeah. That was one of the originals. I mean, <laughs> kids' bikes are kind of absurd, right? Like, who's who's spending eight grand on a kids' bike? But who cares? It's it's fun to look at, right? And yeah, and thank heavens they didn't offer them for sale, or I probably would have bought mine for the kids years ago. Because <laughs> I think uh, you know, I'll admit it. Specialized sold a fat bike for kids, probably twenty fourteen time frame. It was well over a grand. We have one at my house. I've got, yeah, I've gotten it through three kids, and it's an absurd purchase, right? But that was. Made me happy, so I bought it. So let's be honest here. That that tricycle made Vanilla's founder happy to give to his daughter, right? 
his daughter didn't give two hoots no, about what her bike was or or what have you. But it's a cool show if you're into kind of those boutique parts by Chris King or White Industries or you know any of the Phil Wood, you know any of these guys that makes sort of these high end boutique parts. And maybe you're not into this kind of stuff, but made the bikes it made feature a lot of it. And I'm gonna say there were wasn't just custom steel frames there. There were carbon fiber. I think there were even some laminated and composite wood frames. I mean just Yep. All kinds of goofiness going on that was just really cool to look at. Um, yeah, I would definitely definitely use the search engines on the internet and go look at some of these bikes. I think they're really cool. Uh, even if you're not into that particular kind of bike, you start looking at how the you know the geek nerd in me, you start looking at sort of how the the attachment points go together and some of the artistry for the head tubes and the lug joints. Oh, just I could go on for days. It's really cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean it's not a fit issue for me. It's just I love bikes. I love artistically well done bikes and that show had plenty plenty to spare likewise they weren't just all pretty bikes there were some really cool utilitarian concepts you'll see for some of these custom bikes that maybe aren't uh let's say in fashion with the mainstream brands today but who knows five ten years from now the bike that was kind of the oddity it made could become kind of the next mainstream concept for all we know 750d could be the newest thing and none of us had the vision to yeah see it coming so chad i have a follow-up question yeah. How far have you gotten in polishing your Dura Ace cranks? I I haven't even started yet. <laughs> but uh, emails have been sent. Let me let me just say that. <laughs> what what kind of wheels do you have on your kids specialized carbon balance bike? I don't I don't have a carbon balance bike, but let's see. I got a let's see. I think one of the kids has a 24 inch. It was a rock hopper. I don't know. Whatever the one of the specialized mountain bikes are that are 24 inch with a suspension fork. One kid's got that. The other kid's got a specialized fat bike, and I just kind of move them around between the kids. And who knows? Luckily, I haven't had to. I think one of my wife's old bikes got uh, redone and uh, modified for the oldest kid. So my kids have got some pretty nice bikes. I'll be honest with you. Well, I guess you're you're lucky in a sense then, Chad, that you didn't go to Made, because you might be coming home with some kids' bikes that are even less practical than what you just described. Well, I probably wouldn't have even come home with a kids' bike. Let's be honest. Uh, I would have probably come home with a rather large credit card deposit. Let's let's be clear about that. It's, I mean, Chad is the uh, the equivalent of like a, the the meth head, you know, going into a, it's like the wrong place, you know. What's what's sad about this is we give Chad so much crap, and probably since we last saw Randy, he's bought seven more LAs. Yeah. <laughs> At least I'm somewhat diversified, right? I mean, I will. I will that is I true. Haven't, I haven't bought you know four of the exact same uh, lugged frame carbon cross bike or something, right? But you know, Randy, I, I'm I'm 100 positive that Randy is single-handedly responsible for the elevated inflation value of LA's trading in the open market because I believe he's just <laughs> trading amongst himself and doesn't realize it. Yeah. He's the uh, moderator of your LA is overpriced. Yeah. I, I think he is just bidding against himself on eBay, driving up the market price for aluminum crit bikes. That's it. It is a good bike. I yep. don't know if it's like however many of them good, though. <laughs> Well, Randy just he runs stems that vary from size forty mil to hundred and forty mil, and and it could be a fifty four <laughs> or a fifty six. So I mean, they all feel different to him, Ryan. 
This, but this, yeah. He he has the he has the rental fleet for our service course here. <laughs> right. Yeah, but you know this goes back to what I was saying. You get someone like Randy, who, you know, for better or worse, the guy was not really into bikes because he was a triathlete, and then you know he starts riding road, and he doesn't even know what fits him. That's my point. <laughs> I mean, this guy surely has different experiences on different bikes because. As you said, Mike, they are all different for the same. He's the same. It's the same type of bike. It's not like one is a mountain bike and one is a uh, road bike. So, so, so you just touched on a, a fantastic point, Eric. Is Randy is definitely in in the top one or two of us as far as intelligence goes. He is. <laughs> He is, he is a super athlete, right? Yes. He is. So he's a super athlete. He's very intelligent, but if, if you were to put him out there and and put him into a store and he saw a purple, uh, truck and if it looked cool to him and it had deep carbon wheels, it doesn't matter if it has a, a one piece bar and stem that's 180 mil and they put him on a size 58 because that's the only one they had in the store. He's going to buy it. And that's the funny thing is like Randy kind of knows, but he doesn't, but he doesn't. So you could, you know, Randy is not the every, every man, but he, when it comes to bike purchasing and that kind of things, he, he probably is right. Right. And, and are we, are we going to let Randy ever get back on this podcast to defend himself? Cause I think, I think, I, hope, I, think, I, hope I think Mike so. Green just put a but, lot of words in his mouth there. So Randy, yeah, Randy, but, if you do listen, right. please. Please go take it up with Mike. The rest of us don't have that. He, he's not. He's not listening. I, I just. But here, here's the. Point. I just want to say I was number one in the intelligence level. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. All right. So you know, Eric. So what do we got? Well, I mean, Eric, we could we could go with some some trivia about you know ill-fitting mountain bike history. So you were complaining about one piece bar and stem, and that's. That's not new to the cycling industry, right? I mean, if we if we go back la- long enough to the introduction of the mountain bike, right? We had the one piece bar and stem, which I mean, you know what that's called, right? The the very popular model. They're called bull moose bars. Have you have you heard of these, mm-hmm. right? They they were no. they were pretty popular on some Richies. So it's a one piece bar and stem where the handlebar initially they they fit into a quill stem. So the stem and the bar are one okay. piece. They they don't come that way. Well. The, the term bull moose bar came about because they were custom designed for one client and then sold to a whole vernacular of them in the whole industry. So that that original client's name was Ted Roosevelt, some young kid from Santa Monica, California. And they thought it was kind of funny that, you know, they make fun of him, called him Teddy Roosevelt. So they named him the bull moose bars and they stopped. That's great. And it has moved on ever since then. <laughs> so. That's great. It's not really great, but it's a sad story. And it might be true. It might not. Go ahead and Google it. Find out. <laughs> All of your factoids, you end with, go ahead and Google it. <laughs> I like it. I think we're going to have to call it a night here. Yeah. <laughs> this is I'm, going wrong. Already this is going bad. We need to tell our tell our listeners to like and subscribe and comment. Oh, that's and... right. That's right. Well, you, you say it this time. Um, okay. Well, first of all, I want to give props to Kylie, who was, well, it still is Eric's coach, was one of Mike and I's coaches. She just got third at Gravel Worlds. Kudos to her. Um, awesome job, Kylie. Yes. Um, I'm sure she, she doesn't listen, so it doesn't what's, matter. What's her Instagram <laughs> handle? Uh, Kai Kai loves try. 
oh, then we can't talk about her. No, no, she's she's solid. She's in. Yeah. Um. Anyway, um. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, subscribe, like, share it, um, leave a comment. That's how it gets moved up and gets um, people listening. If you believe in what we're doing, and it, more than anything, just share it with your friends if you're enjoying it. All right. All right. Guys. See you guys tomorrow. Bye. Maybe. All right. Hey, have you even been listening to what I've been saying? I've been talking to you for the last 10 minutes.